Well, hey, all you wiretappers out there, Gary Jenkins here, retired Kansas City Police Intelligence Detective. Back here in the studio, I want to tell you a Kansas City story. I don't often do Kansas City stories, but I, I like to do one every once in a while. And this is a story, of give you a broad overview. This is a story of a grassroots entertainment district development that was really ruined by the mob. Urban renewal, mob bombs, a lot of stuff going on in this. Murders. There was an area close to the city market. It was along one street called Delaware, which was on one side of the city market was Little Italy, where all the mob guys, their families first moved to, where they first got their first jobs is at the city market. On the other side, there's this street that had actually been the original downtown of Kansas City. The old city hall was on this street. A lot of big old brick buildings around here. But by 1971, 70, it was really run down and there was not much going on. Uh, Italian people had kind of, there'd been a highway that had cut down and taken out a lot of their houses and divided the city market from the rest of Little Italy. There was an easy way to ride through a couple of streets to get to city market. The mob had always hung out at the city market. They had a proprietary interest in the city market. Here's a, here's a former employee from down in this area named Chuck Haddix that will talk about this. The city market was adjacent to the River Key. And the city market traditionally had been run by the mob. And so the mob really wanted to get in on the action at the River Key. You know, artists always lead the way to these kinds of grassroots development. Lou Merrick and Philomene Bennett opened their studio. And other artists, that attracted other artists. And then uh, these entrepreneurs followed, uh, these uh, opening businesses in the area. And, and it really was a grassroots scene led by the artists. It's just kind of interesting. Ironically, once the area becomes successful, the artists have to go find another area. Now, during this time, 1971, a man named Marion Trezolo had a business down there. He was, he was putting Teflon on pans when the early people to do this. And he was making a lot of money and he loved all these old buildings. They all had these great cornices and doorways. And he loved that old architecture and loved these old buildings. And you could, you could rent one or you could buy one or get a long-term lease on one for practically nothing because everybody was moving out. Like I said, the early seventies, white flight was in. Full bloom after the riots of 68, people were leaving downtown. They were moving out. The businesses were moving out of downtown. It was really, there wasn't much left. We had one department store by then, a Jones store, I think. Maybe there might have been a Macy's, but then they did hardly any business. And the government buildings, of course, they were, they were the big employees downtown, but a lot of um, apartment complexes and office buildings were being built out in the far suburbs and businesses were moving out there. Downtown was really was dying in 1971, 72. Well, Mr. Trezolo wanted to fix up an area down here by the city market. It was adjacent to downtown with walking distance of downtown, the city center, the, you know, 12th and, and Oak and Maine and the police department and the Jackson County courthouse and the big federal building and a whole bunch of high rise office buildings that at one time had been filled with lawyers offices and, and other businesses down there in downtown. He started buying these buildings or getting long-term leases on them and hiring young guys to go in there and just gut them out. And he used the exposed brick and the old wood floors, the old wood be ceilings, beams in the ceiling. And, and, you know, they were cool. We had never seen anything like that. And then he started 
leasing them out to restaurants, young people that wanted to start a restaurant. He had really inexpensive rates because he had very little invested in these buildings, art studios, art galleries, a little boutiques, uh, other restaurants, a really cool restaurant started popping in because people, you know, they could take a risk. Now, I remember this one guy, uh, uh, Ellie Cohen, I think this dude's name, I got to know him. See, I had a district car around there. And so I'd stop in and, and talk to these different people as they were putting these businesses up, just, you know, and they were fun. They were, they were fun young people and they were, had a lot of enthusiasm. So Ellie Cohen, he Started a restaurant called Cindy's Bedspread. He had about 20 different hamburgers with 20 different toppings to put on them. We never heard anything like this in Kansas City. You know, at this point in time, you know, throughout the 50s and 60s, we had steakhouses, of course, because we're steak capital of the United States at the time. We had cafeterias. We had diners. We had little greasy spoons. And we had some bars and a couple of kind of nightclubs that had nice restaurants and, and a nice club that people went to. So it was, it wasn't, and those were all closing up in the, in the center of City, particularly except for the the oh the chili parlors too. We had two or three chili chili parlors. That was a big deal. Barbecue wasn't even a big deal then. There was a barbecue, but it was over on the east side, and hardly anybody went there unless you were really you know you worked over in Midtown. You were a working guy over in Midtown. You wanted this huge big lunch or dinner of of uh, barbecued ribs or something. The mob is watching all this as this guy is building up this area and it becomes immensely popular. I can't explain it, but it was like they had several clubs that had bands and young people started going my age. I was 26, 27 years old and all us baby boomers started going down there and partying. And they were the kind of the first singles joints, if you will, before discos, uh, after kind of the the old nightclub with jazz and that kind of a thing. Why like this was, you know, they had modern bands. I remember this one place, Ebenezer's, a guy named Irish guy named Mike Ryan had it. He had uh, a, and he gutted out the inside of this big building. And on in the center, there was an old office. It was just a freestanding building. And he put the band on top of it. And then all around it, there was a bar. And then all the rest of it was all seating areas, really cool place. And, and so it was, it was starting to pop. And during this time, there's a guy named Freddie Bonadonna saw early on this was going to be a going Jesse. He was one of the first restaurant bars down there at Italian restaurant, of course. And he had had a Italian restaurant a few blocks away, south of downtown. Uh, one of those, there's only two or three Italian gardens was downtown. Then Freddy's, uh, can't even remember the name of that club or that uh, restaurant now. Mom did the cooking, you know, typical joint like that. Mom does the cooking and brothers and sisters work in there and, and to keep it going. Uh, so he buys a spot down there and he calls it Poor Freddy's. And he becomes kind of a mover and shaker. I remember we used to work off duty down there and, and Freddie, we'd go into his joint and he'd just get cash money out of the uh, till and pay us for for just walking around providing security because there really wasn't much going on. It was just a lot of young people having fun. It was a great place to work off duty, I'll tell you that. Tons of girls down there, tons of single girls down there uh, going to those joints. So, you know, we were all young in our prime. What the, What are you going to do? The mob's watching this, of course. Matter of fact, Corky Savella, the mob, the boss of our brother, Nick Savella, once went into Freddy's and said, you know, you're an idiot. You know what? There's nothing going on down here. You're never going to make any money. Then as this starts going and pretty soon they realize that there's big crowds coming down here Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night and Saturday afternoon and Sunday afternoon because they're doing a lot of things to 
to try to get family people coming down. The, this Murray Trizolo, he really kind of let his other business go and took over management of this whole area. He bought a, a, a double-decker bus from England, and we're taking people on tours out of there to downtown and, and around Kansas City. So it was it was hopping, and everybody knew it was hopping. But Corky came back in there one time, and, and Freddie says, hey, Cork, how you doing? I'm doing okay. He said, you know, he said, this area, boy, it's, it's, you know, ain't nobody making any money down there. Boy, sure, I'm sorry I started this club down there. <laughs> Corky just like, rawr, rawr, you know, and he was mad. I, I don't know if this had anything to do with what's going to happen later on, but but I know he was he was kind of bucking up and and making Cork, uh, you know, kind of playing the dozens on him. Like, oh, you, you idiot. I was the one that was smart. You're the one that's stupid. So the, the Savella family, all right, I need to talk about the mob family, which felt like they had a proprietary interest in the market. So the Savella family, Nick Savella was the boss. He was he was a guy that never hit the joints at night. He was he read, he studied, he was canny, he was a good management guy. He he was, you know, he only worked through his brother Cork and his underboss, Tuffy Luna. You did not talk to Nick Savella, unless you were just, you know, joking around or something. As far as business, he only worked through these guys. His underboss, Tuffy, he had a kind of a crew, a guy named Charlie Mortina and a couple other younger guys that, that there was, this was really the Kansas City's hit team. Uh, they also kind of oversaw that another guy that was involved with them, Frankie Tucson and later Pete Simone, who ran all the sports gambling. And, and uh, that, of course, you get loan sharking and bust out scams. But but when you got into the lower level enforcement out of those operations, the higher end, they also handled the money out of Las Vegas, the skim. When that started flowing in, this higher end, Tuffy DeLuna and Cork, uh, Charlie Mortina, they knew about that. These lower level guys didn't know about it. So on the lower level, you had Willie Comisano, who had a big crew. It would be a, a capo of a big crew who had really handled all the street rackets, hijackings, uh, boosters, you know, to who was fencing, who wasn't, who got the records from the boosters. Uh, arsons, arsons for hire, strip clubs, loan shark collection, any enforcement activities among all these minor criminals that are out making them all money. That that fell to Willie Camasano's crew, and he had a son who was about my age, uh, Willie Camasano Jr., who was moved on up into that and became a made guy and was involved with several murders. Uh, and and Willie's crew was was really involved with in those kinds of, of activities, unless it was at a certain level. There's a whole nother level uh, that's close to Nick Savella that Tuffy DeLuna's crew take, took care of. Now, there were several bars. Now, we got the River Key going, right? This is right north of downtown around the city market. But there's an area called West 12th Street at the time. It was about six blocks west, say, of Main Street, six to eight blocks west of Main Street. That had historically been, uh, there was a, the municipal auditoriums there. They built Bartle Hall, which is a big convention area. Historically, this had been the lower rent clubs where they have go-go girls and kind of a, as, as my friend Phil Cartarella, a local lawyer whose dad was a mob guy, says. They thought the way you made money off a bar was the way you made it. They made it on 12th Street, which is you get truck drivers visiting the city to buy expensive watered-down booze for 50-year-old whores. They had no idea what a singles bar was. So these kind of low-rent, 
West 12th Street joints where a lot of Willie Camasano's guys had joints down there. Lonnie Roccaforti, uh, Johnny Green Amaro, Joe Camasano, Willie's brother, and a couple of other guys. And Johnny Green Amaro is going to come back into this thing. Johnny Green is kind of an interesting guy. He, uh, he, You know what he specialized in? Only out here in the West, shall we say, stealing saddles and had guys that would go to horse shows and different places where there were horses and, and big horse barns. We have horse farms here in the city, out in the suburbs, uh, steal saddles and other tack, steal horses, high-end horses. So he was like the original Old West kind of a guy, although he was a city guy. Uh, he also developed what they called the Johnny Green ignition switch. Now, I don't know if he really did that, but this is what the bomb and arson guys used to call the Johnny Green ignition switch for an arson. They would take a gas pipe loose, let the gas start, take a lit cigarette and stick it into a book of the folding book of the throwaway uh, matches, go for matches. We used to call them, Got light one and go for another, stick it in that book of matches, let the cigarette burn down while the gas is filling up the room. And when the cigarette burns down to the sulfur on the matches and it, it flares and that flare will then explode the gas that's already burned down there or down there. And there's like no, the best thing, our department can do and the art bomb and arson guys can do is they go find where a gas pipe has been unscrewed and taken loose. And many times where there's enough of an explosion, they're not even going to find that. And this, this will come into play here in a little bit. So West 12th street. I remember I, I first came on, I like rode around the area and we had a few calls in there during, I was working days. And then I had a footbeat. I didn't, I didn't work footbeat all the time. I filled in for the West 12th street footbeat guy. He was really well known down there. And I go in different clubs and all those bar owners be trying to buy me a drink or give me a drink. And, and then one of one of the girls was, she was like coming on to me like crazy, but uh, I was, at least I had a little bit of sense when I was 26 years old. Uh, a lot of older guys than me didn't have that much sense. I know that. Success is coming to the River Key area, just a few blocks north of this West 12th Street area. Well, there's a big remodeling, rehabilitation project going on to build something called the Bartle Auditorium, which was a huge convention center. It's about three blocks long. It's right next to our old convention center, which I mentioned before, the municipal auditorium. So they're redoing that. They're redoing a uh, an old theater down there called the Folly Theater, which had been a, a burlesque thing for a long time, for the last 20 years, and then goes all the way back to the, the 30s and 40s, where it was a burlesque theater when burlesque was a little different. And anyhow, it's kind of, they're rebuilding it and rehabbing it into a really high-end concert, a small outlet for for smaller groups and and uh, maybe the symphony and and places like that and there's going to be a hotel a marriott hotel was going down there in this one long block where all these clubs were these go-go clubs or strip clubs whatever you want to call them there's a lot of money flowing into these guys to buy them out of their places of course they spent a half a million dollars three quarters of a million dollars in decorating little Las Vegas places down in the River Key, thinking they could charge people $10, $15 to come in as cover charges to these great places. Success is happening down in the River Key. These guys see that and they think, we got to go down there. Freddie Bonadonna is going good down there, and, and he's going so good. He he has a good friend on the city council, a guy named uh, Hernandez, uh, 
Frank or John, some common name, Hernandez. Anyhow, Councilman Hernandez is his good buddy. So Freddie sees that these joints want to go in. And he knows that if those guys start going in the river key, it's kind of kind of ruined the family atmosphere and the young people atmosphere that's that's going on down to the young working people, educated people, because they're going to start bringing in a, a different sort of a crowd and going to be a lot rougher crowd. And and he doesn't want that. He didn't want to join, uh, stop that family atmosphere because he can see it's really going. He goes to the city councilman and he, he starts feeding the city councilman background information on people that are applying for liquor licenses because they can't, they are, they're convicted felons, felons. So they apply for them under another name. And then he'll feed that info to the city councilman and he'll go to liquor control and they'll stop them from getting licenses. Now they end up with a workaround around that. And the mob, you know, they, they've always got workarounds. There's a, a board, a politically appointed board that will hear appeals for any kind of enforcement activity that the city liquor control does or appeals for if you get denied a license. So pretty soon they're getting their licenses because they're appealing to this politically appointed board. So they're starting to move in down there. And 12th Street has had gotten kind of tawdry. And we're talking 12th Street downtown. And there was remnants of what had been 12th Street. And there was a lot of strip clubs down on 12th Street. Because of urban renewal, they were being torn down. And so, you know, the, the guys, the mobsters that were in charge of that particular, of those that area, had no place to go. They wanted to keep their hustle going. So where would you want to take it? You would take it to the River Key. Freddie has also, through his city council friend, he finds out there's a bunch of unused parking they're behind his joint, between his joint and the city market. There's like about two blocks long area of parking that was for the city market, but it's never used except on Saturday mornings. During the week, it's barely used during the day and at night, it's not used at all, especially Wednesday, big nights, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, not used at all. So he gets a lease on these parking lots. And he starts putting a guy out there who will charge you a couple bucks whenever you pull in. I remember pulling in there and this guy appears out of nowhere and said, that'll be $2. I'm going, what the hell? This is Kansas City. You don't pay to park here. He said, you're going to tow you off if you don't pay it. So you pay it. And he was making, you know, probably a grand or so in cash money in 1974-75 every week out of that thing. And and Willie and Joe Camisano, Joe's got a joint going down there by now called Cotton Eye Joe's. And they see this money that Freddie's making out of the parking lot. Well, Freddie has a dad named David Bonadonna, who is a longtime mob guy since he was a young kid, a burglar and, and you know, raised a family. And all his kids were pretty well on the straight and narrow Freddie was not involved with any shenanigans or with the mob at all, but David was, and he was a made guy and he was in Willie Camisano's crew. Willie and Joe, they go to Freddie and say, you know, we need a little piece of that action. You need to help our guys get liquor licenses down here and you need to give us some of that parking lot money. Freddie says, no, I ain't going to do it. His dad, David, is a made guy in Willie's crew. So Willie talks to David and, you know, you got to get his guy to do it. Well, so here's former homicide detective Clarence Gibson talking about he was a family friend of the Bonadonnas, and so they would confide in him about some of these things. Now, this came from a relative. It didn't come from any police sources. It came from some of the family members I personally knew. David Leslie went and talked to Freddie. No, nah, Pop, I don't want him down here. So he came back, and he told uh, 
Willie, he, it ain't going to happen. My son doesn't want to do it, and I'm not going to force him. And Willie has allegedly said, you know, he could get hurt. David responded with, you know, you're going to hurt my son. You've got to come through me. Willie Camasano and Joe met with Nick Savella at uh, the, the bar, I guess the one downtown, and talked about it. Nick more or less said, you know, I'd give it a month. You guys try to work out. You can't work it out in a month. You do what you got to do. Willie's threatened Freddie through his dad, David. And you heard what Clarence Gibson had to say about that. Freddie starts acting like he's helping with the liquor license, but he really isn't. Here's what former FBI agent Bill Owsley has to say about that. Freddie Bonadonna was trying to keep the River Key clean, wholesome, and open to family entertainment. That put him in direct conflict with elements of the organized crime family. Fred was determined that he was not going to give in. So he opted to play one of the most dangerous games you can play. Outwardly, he was going to help them. Sub Rosa, he was going to resist them. So, for example, he went to the developer, Canizero, who had bought out Trezolo, and he said, listen, I can't be there. I can't be open, but when these guys come in, I'm going to introduce them, and you're going to say you're going to back them. Once they leave, we have to resist them. Joe uh, Camasano, who was a brother to Willie Camasano, wanted to bring the go-go girls down there, but he couldn't get a license, a liquor license, because the West Side Councilman, who was Freddie's friend from back in the day, kept him from getting it because he had something to do with the liquor control uh, at that time. The leader of that West 12th Street group was Joseph Camisano. Uh, his brother, William Camisano, uh, was a major player in Savella's outfit. We go along for a while, and Willie and Joe have really figured out Freddie's not helping them. His dad, David, told Willie Camisano, if you're going to hurt my son, you got to go through me. So he went through him. Willie's got a headquarters, a, a garage is all it was that really nothing went on inside. He had some table and chairs and coffee pot and refrigerator and kind of a little office-like thing set up. And he would meet guys over there all the time. We used to watch this place all the time and see who Willie's guys were. And when they were coming and going, it was like his own little social club. We had the social club, the Northview over in Little Italy. Well, this was Willie's social club. Well, it was just, you know, 536 Monroe is all we ever called it. A citizen happens to see a green Mustang pull into that garage. David drove a, David Bonadonna drove a new green Mustang. The same citizen happens to be out front when that Mustang backed out. Lawrence Gibson reports that a different driver backed that out because that driver did not know how to drive a stick. We were called to a green Mustang at Knife and Wabash, an apartment complex, and in the trunk was David Bonadonna. He'd been murdered. Uh, Freddie was a alerted to what was going on. Uh, he had been talking to us. He'd been talking to the police. We had given him, you know, guidelines. He was watching himself. They couldn't kill him. And, uh, but it went on, this stalking, this back and forth. To make matters worse, Fred had thrown in with a guy named Sonny Bowen, Freddie starts laying low. I mean, what's he going to do? His Now his dad's disappeared. And about two weeks later, they find his dad's body in the trunk of the car over in the projects, which were reasonably close. Freddie's, you know, the gloves are off. Freddie's laying low. 
mob is there's some mob associates that are kind of on the outs with the Savella faction and they start hanging around Freddie's bar and restaurant. I remember this. We're going, what is Sonny Bowen and Mike Ruffalo and uh, this Gary T. Parker and some of these that were kind of in between guys that were younger guys are more like my age and around their 25 to 30 professional jewel thieves and professional burglars and that kind of thing. And, and we knew that this Sonny Bowen was a pretty good thief and he had a contract on him because somebody had already tried to put a bomb and the blasting cap went off early and left some tissue and some detritus inside of his car. We knew there was a contract out on him. The bureau had gone to him and said, Hey, you know, there's a contract on you. And he said, you know, he said, I can handle it. You know, don't worry about it. So these guys are hanging out. Cops are called up to Johnny Green's house, which is about a block from Nick Savella's house. Now, this is only a block from Nick Savella's house. And this little area we, we call Philomena Acres had Nick Savella's house. Right across the street was Corky Savella's house. Right up the street used to be Highway Simone's house, Thomas Highway Simone, who was the old underboss. Now it's Carmen Savella's house, who is a nephew to Nick Savella. And then right next to Corky's house is his oldest son and Nick Savella's nephew, Tony Ripe Savella, who will go on and be part of the mob and do some time. And several other Nick Savella's driver, Pete Tamborello, lives down the street. And and several other Savella associates live in this small neighborhood, suburban neighborhood. And Johnny Green lives about a block away. Wasn't all mob people up there, a lot of other, but primarily Italian people from moved over from Little Italy and over from Northeast, where all the Italian people had first settled. It's their first move up to the suburbs. Johnny Green, he always would close up his club. Now he's down in the River Key by now. He'd close up his club. He would go to this restaurant, which was on his way home. I believe it was a Sambo's. How you got, I mean, you guys remember Sambo's restaurants. They don't call them Sambo's. They couldn't call them Sambo's anymore. But went to a Sambo's, which was open all night long. He would meet Joe Camisano and his wife, Doris, and they'd have breakfast after they closed their joints down. He'd do this all the time. He had a regular pattern of doing this. So once you get a regular pattern, dude, you, better, you know, if you're, if you're in this life, you better watch what you're doing when you're in this regular pattern. But people are people and they don't do it. Left there, he drove on up to his house. He had, he had a nice, you know, at the time, a newer house. It's probably 60 years old now. It's probably 10 or 15 at the time. Had garage door and garage door opener. One of the early garage door openers. Pulled up in the driveway, opened the garage door, pulled in. Well, rather than just go ahead and shut the door as he put, after he got inside, he waited, you know, probably got out and then walk up to the back door and, and hit the button. He didn't, he didn't do that. Big mistake was he didn't go ahead and start that garage door closing because he might've been alerted to something because Sonny Bowen and his fall partner, Gary T. Parker, had done a lot of crime together, were hiding around the alcoves of the garage and they just stepped inside, stepped up next to him and popped him with shotguns from both sides. Go back out, jump in their car and take off. And, and it's a typical, I mean, these guys were mob associates. They weren't mob members, they were associates. And But they did the mob thing. Of, they threw the shotguns away about two or three blocks away and they dumped a stolen car not too far from that. So that's typical mob hit, a block or so, block and a half from Nick Savella's house. It was like a slap in the face to the Savella faction. To top it off, Sonny Bowen, he goes back down to Freddy's the next day. And, and there's this one guy who I mentioned before, Mike Ruffalo. He was, he was reporting everything that he heard to the FBI during his years. He reports that Sonny Bowen and Gary T. Parker are both bragging that they're the ones that hit Johnny Green. Now, go figure that. 
Three days later, they've got a, a wake for Johnny Green down at Sabato's funeral home, which is down in the North End or Little Italy. Somebody comes in that night. We don't know who, or they call in or they do something. And they say, hey, Sonny Bowen is out at Mr. O'Brien's Tavern out at Armour and Broadway. It's about 25 blocks south of there, all by himself. His car sitting out in front. They already have, already obviously have a hit car lined up, a work car, as they call it, and mask and guns, because they go right from the wake. Three guys go right from the wake, jump in this car, head out. They go in the back door. There was a back door and a front door. They went in the back door of Mr. O'Brien's. Two of them split off, point guns at the rest of the people in the bar to make sure there's no off-duty cops or anything that are going to try to be a hero. One of them walks right over to Sonny Bowen, and he's sitting in a booth all by himself and pops him two or three times, kills him right there. Drive off, throw their guns away about three or four blocks away, drop the car off. So of course, that was never solved. Actually, we never solved any mob murders in Kansas City. The Kansas City mob is tight. Nobody ever talked, and especially about any murders. They talked about little things. This Mike Ruffalo, he talked about a lot of little things. He talked about one time, Cork Savella hired him and a guy that he worked with on a regular basis to go plant a stick of dynamite underneath the strip club owner's car and set it off in order to intimidate the guy because Cork wanted to muscle in on the strip club business. So little things like that, but or the extortion of the parking lot money and little things like that. But when they did a murder, they included nobody that was ever going to talk and nobody ever did. So the Bureau goes after this Gary T. Parker to try to get, maybe he's got something and he won't talk about anything. They said, well, you know, your buddy, Sonny Bowen is dead and you were part of it. We know you were part of that hit on Johnny Green. They can't prove it or they would have charged him with it, but we, they know he's part of that hit because they've been bragging about it. But all they got is, you know, secondhand bragging about it. no, cooperating evidence and he's uncooperative and he's a drunk he was a horrible drunk he'd done do drunken things as at first they started trying to like you know ride around with him and have another car behind him trying to catch him setting him up because we know that the, and the bureau has picked up from their informants and from other some other wire that they had up that they're in a, a frenzy to go ahead and do gary t parker Parker is uh, going out to clubs and and he's getting so drunk that he's getting in fights in the clubs because he knows he's got these policemen and agents right there. And they have to like throw him in the car and drive him back home and try to force him to go in his apartment. And, and, and one time, then they just quit riding with him. They just try to stay behind him. One time he pulled over and jumped out and turned around and, and acted like he pulled a gun out and was pointing it right at the guys that were following him who had pulled over. You know, it just He was just stupid like that. Finally, they just let him go. And the mob just lets him go at the time. They like, we caught him one time. Guy named Vince Bacone tried to set him up with a meeting, you know, set him up with a job or some money thing, kind of entice him to a meeting. And the Bureau found out about that and surveilled the meeting. And, and they saw 
somebody looked like a hit team coming into the area. But, you know, those things are really hard. We had more than one example of them seeing us and a hit team seeing us and us not being able to react fast enough to get them stopped or do anything with them. And as soon as they see us, they're just gone. They'll give up and try again a week from now or a month from now that everything's on their, to their advantage. And they're sharp guys. These, these Savella hit teams uh, working under Tuffy DeLuna is are sharp people. You don't want them after you. Seems like the mob just gives up on Parker T although not really. Freddie Bonadonna goes into hiding during this time. He agrees to help the FBI with an extortion case on the Camisano brothers, Joe and uh, Willie, kind of get them for extorting money on the parking lot situation. You know, what's funny about that is Freddie said, you know, there's one more parking lot about a block on down the street there that you could get, you could lease yourself and put your own guy in there and collect money on. They didn't want to do that. They just wanted some of Freddie Bonadonna's money, wanted him to do all the work. Typical mob deal. You do all the work and give me a piece of your action. And it really was just because his dad was in the mob. He was never in it. He was never even close to it. And I don't think he ever depended on them for anything. He acted, you know, against their advice, really, if you remember the deal with Corks. And, you know, you're not going to make any money down here. This is stupid. Uh, but Freddie has to go into hiding. And Freddie and his brother and another guy owned a large brick building in the River Key. This is like the, this ended the River Key, that whole area that had so much promise and so many people were making a lot of money down there and helping revitalize the core part of the city, bring people back into the city, get people to live down around there. He had this large brick building and it had two chunk clubs in it. And there were mob associates, Pat O'Brien's and Pat O'Brien was half Italian. And he he kind of modeled it along the Pat O'Brien's in New Orleans, he even had the hurricane glasses, said Pat O'Brien's on it. But he was a gambler, a sports gambler. He had actually been sent up to uh, Council Bluffs, Iowa at one time. I think after this, later on after this, he'd been sent, he was sent up to Council Bluffs, Iowa with another mob guy, mob gambler named John Costanza. And they were supposed to to, to set up a sports book in, in Council Bluffs, Iowa, but some local guys intimidated him or something. They ended up coming back. There's a guy had Judge Roy Beans, a guy that owned it, ended up owning strip clubs ever since. And, and he was definitely a mob associate. So they had these two joints running in it. They were way behind on their rent. Any They weren't paying their rent. They were behind on their liquor bills. Freddie's got a $100,000 damage insurance policy on this building. River Key's kind of going downhill, not much going on. He's not earning money out of this building. So uh, the two mob guys are, you know, they're not, they're making a little money, but it's not going to last. So what what's going to happen? The whole building gets blown up. They say it was a battle over the River Key. And I talked about this being the war over the River Key and that kind of thing. And that was the image that this explosion gave to this area this was nothing to do with any war. This was to do with insurance. It was a huge explosion. Here, listen to what the uh, commander, uh, Les Hash of the bomb and arson, had to say about that. I received a call from the dispatcher about 2 o'clock in the morning, and she stated that there was two buildings that disappeared. Nothing left but a huge hole. Aerial photo on the front page of the Kansas City Star showing this big hole in the ground. There was nothing but all the bricks that were in this huge big building were spread out for several blocks around, blew out all the windows around, and dumped everything else in the basement of this building. 
We took all those bricks and and detritus out of that, spread them out down on the river levee where there was nobody along there, and we could spread them out and sifted through them, and we never found anything. Ran bob dogs over them, and they didn't trip to anything. I think again, it was a gas explosion, probably with a Johnny Green uh, ignition switch. Probably it just got too much gas in there. I don't think they really intended on blowing it up that bad because uh, somebody could have easily killed somebody. They happened to be walking down the street next to it. A lot of articles in the paper about David Bonadonna and Freddie. And there's another bombing on the back door of uh, Joe Camasano's club, Cotton Eye Joe's, the Northview Social Club. Somebody had put a bomb on the back door of that. So people are nervous. Kansas City's quit coming into the River Key. Here's what my friend Chuck Haddix had to say about that, and a pretty funny little story about this explosion. I just cleaned up the bar, and I had my cash box my, uh, in my hand from the uh, bar receipts. And all of a sudden, there's this loud explosion. The building shook. I mean, we're talking railroad cars shook. There were these cooks and these uh, uh, bus people out in the car smoking pot in this car in the parking lot. And when the bomb went up, it blew the windows out of the car. And it dropped this heavy refrigeration unit right next to the car. If it hit the car, it killed them all. And they came walking in, beating on the back door, and they came walking in, and they were smoking. And I looked at them, and I said, man, that must have been some dynamite shit you were smoking. And unfortunately, that really marked the end to the River Key. I remember the next day I went to work, People were driving through, looking at the crater, but people stopped coming down there. And the business dropped off greatly, and then Victoria Station, of course, closed pretty soon after that because there just was no business. People were scared to go down there. So the River Key's done. This whole area just goes downhill. They end up with a couple of strip clubs down there, some former bar owners from West 12th Street. Neither one of them are really successful. You can't get people to come down there like you could when it was over in downtown right next to the convention center. You got a, a strip club, those kinds of uh, dirty bookstores and all that right next to a convention center where people walk out of the convention center. You see that within a block or two. You got something going, but this was like eight or 10 blocks away from the convention center and and the whole area was just re returned really to a lot of homeless guys because there was a homeless shelter down there called the helping hand and the people working at the city market which it wasn't really a big deal back then it was mainly just for businesses for restaurants to come down there and, and grocery stores small grocery stores and it was a produce market for them but it really wasn't even for the public to speak of Freddie Bonadonna has gone witness protection. He'll testify behind a screen in front of a congressional hearing on the mob in Kansas City and explain about this River Key thing. Because it really, it, it, it really set Kansas City back. I mean, it, since then, over the years, this whole River Key area is now renamed the city market. And of course, they put condos and lofts and businesses. And it, it's just as, as hopping as it was back then. But it, it really stopped it for years and, and all around Kansas City, all around downtown is taking on that same kind of thing as most big cities have. You know, the the people, the lofts, people are moving back into downtown clubs and we built a big new uh, auditorium and stadium for concerts and we just don't have a sports team for it but the t-mobile center we have you know uh, taylor swift will play that two or three nights in a row or garth brooks and those kinds of things and and a big 
what they made an entertainment district just out of nothing, just tore everything down and built new buildings. And then all around that, it's kind of leached out into that. So the old buildings are still being redone. And in the city market, they're being redone, but it really set us back several years. Uh, Freddie, he being down in Naples, Florida, running a restaurant for the rest of his life. He'll sneak back into Kansas City once in a while, but he never really came back and showed his face. Of course, he, he lived in witness protection. He lived under that name the rest of his life. And I guess he didn't want to give up witness protection. Uh, he'll take his own life in 2002. So River Key died. Since then, it's come back and it's jumping the whole down, revitalizing downtown. We've even, we've even got a light rail that starts down there and goes out south to the Union Station and goes through downtown by all these other entertainment districts I talked about. It's hopping at nights. It's it's crazy. So this is this is a kind of an example of the mob and their greed and their way they do business of totally destroying a downtown area for at least a period of time. I know back in Boston, they tried to, and I remember we, they started talking about this as it went down, have a red light district where you have a bunch of dirty movies and show theaters. And we did end up with one down there and strip clubs and, and all that kind of, of uh, combat zone business. Now, it never went in Boston. They tried it in Boston, but it, it never really seemed to go. And it's, you know, it's really pretty distasteful and it never really went in Kansas City. Uh, they did have a couple of those joints down there. And one of them, I told the story at <laughs> the Bowery. They started having even one night tried to have a live sex act, except the dude couldn't get it up. I happened to be in there investigating a club that night. That was a hell of a deal. I remember this guy came off the stage and somebody, one of these jackoffs in the audience started yelling, ah, you couldn't even get it up. What they did, they just simulated sex. And he said, man, he said, you get up here on the stage and see what you can do. The guy shut up after that. So it got kind of crazy for a while, but it didn't last. That didn't last either. The, the Kansas City mob all this time, you know, got all this street stuff going on. There was two or three more murders after this that didn't have anything to do with the key, but they had to do with other stuff, with cleaning up old business that people who were, they were afraid were snitches and that kind of thing. The The FBI is frantically trying to put in some bugs and get on some wires. They've got informants talking about where they're having their dirty talk. Finally, they get a bug in and and... And the mob, unbeknownst to any of us, you know, for sure, other than by rumor, they're out here skimming money out of Las Vegas. And so this is really the precursor to that first bug that you see in the movie Casino. The reason they put that bug in was because of all this stuff I just explained and one other mob war, which I'd have to have a whole whole nother podcast i'll get around to doing it i tell this in my movie gangland wire and that i tell a lot of this river key stuff and you can see a lot of good images and everything of it it's a rental on um, amazon for like a dollar 99 it's the first documentary i really made about the mob in kansas city so i i suggest you see that so that's the story of the war over the river key thanks a lot guys i appreciate y'all listening i appreciate everything you do anytime you give me a like or you join my facebook group gangland wire podcast um, people send me money every once in a while that's kind of nice i appreciate that I like to keep this thing going i don't really do it for the money if i did i know if i was working for money i'd go back and be a lawyer and do something i could really make money at this is a labor of love it's a lot of fun uh, i really like doing it i like this mob history i 
I've been kind of remiss in not doing Kansas City since I first started this thing. So some of the a lot of you, if you're on Apple podcast, they drop off after a while. So I talked about some of this stuff real early, like six, seven years ago when I first started the podcast. So if you've heard this before, it seems familiar. Maybe you've seen my movie or maybe you have, uh, you listen to those early things, but most of you, I don't think have. So I wanted to get this out and I'm going to do that mob, the next mob war that came on the heels of this, the Spiro brothers, once I did the movie about brothers against brothers. And then I want to do one about the skim from Las Vegas from the Kansas city viewpoint. So I appreciate y'all turning in. Don't forget, I ride motorcycles, so watch out for motorcycles when you're out there on the street. If you have a problem with drugs or alcohol, go see our friend Anthony Ruggiano down in Florida or go to his website and get that hotline number. If you have a problem with PTSD and if you've been in the service, be sure and go to the VA website. They've got a hotline for that. And don't forget, if you're like and describe, if you're on YouTube, uh, like and describe. Don't forget if you're on YouTube to like and subscribe down below. If you are listening to this on the podcast app, you know, be sure to you subscribe. I put one out or two out every week. Uh, I got, I don't know how many, depending on the app you're on, there's many as 400 and some back episodes that keep you entertained forever. If you got one of those jobs and you can like listen to the podcast all night long. And I've had guys get hold of me and say, yeah, man, he said, I did this on my job so I could just listen to your podcast all night, all night long. So I, I appreciate those kinds of compliments. You know, I do the best I can. It's a lot of fun. And I really appreciate you guys tuning in.